Please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ezra. This evening we will be looking at Ezra chapter 8. We have three times together left in the book of Ezra, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And what we will be seeing in each of these uh, weeks are various prayers of Ezra and the people of God about things that are uh, important to them. This week we're going to be looking at the people of God praying for protection. Next week we'll be looking at them praying for purity. So this week we begin at Ezra chapter 8 and verse 1. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. This is indeed the word of the Lord. It is completely authoritative. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely without error. Ezra chapter 8. These are the heads of their fathers' houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parash, Zechariah with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pahath-Moab, Elihoni, the son of Zeriah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Ethaliah, and with him seventy men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him eighty men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jael, and with him two hundred eighteen men. Of the sons of Bani, Shalomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him one hundred sixty men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him twenty-eight men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him one hundred ten men. Of the sons of Adonikim, those who came later, their names being Elaphelet, Jeul, and Shemaiah, and with them sixty men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them seventy men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elthnathan, Jarib, Elthnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men. And for Jaorib, and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place Kasiapha, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasiphiah, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, 
the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, also Heshabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merai, with his kinsmen and their son. Twenty. Besides two hundred and twenty of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. All these were mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children and our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Heshabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem, to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem. There we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binui. The total was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this, your word, that you would use it not just that we might learn, O Lord, but that we might be affected and changed we might be drawn closer to you, that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, 
and declare it among the nations. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we turn now to Ezra 8, you recall that last week Ezra had come onto the scene, finally into the book. And now we see that great things are afoot again. Ezra is about to lead a second wave of exiles back to the promised land. Later on in history, that will be covered in the book of Nehemiah, a third wave of exiles will return. And so the Lord is now doing great things in the midst of His people. He is reestablishing, after a fashion, His kingdom. He is delivering on the promises that He has made and declared, especially through the prophet Jeremiah. But I want us to remember here, as great things are afoot, that there are also individual people involved here. We need to remember that even as the Lord works great things on the world stage, each and every one of His people is important. Our lives are important today. And it is important in the midst of all that we do and all that we see that we seek the Lord. That's what Ezra will do, guiding the people of the Lord in praying for protection. And we see as this journey is prepared for and gathered, we see three things going on. For ease of remembrance, they all begin with P. We see the people of God. We see the priests that are gathered together for the mission. And then we see the prayer that Ezra leads God's people in. People, priests, and a prayer. Let's begin then by looking at the people of God as they embark on this journey. It begins with a series of preparations. You will remember what has happened, that there was a previous return. But even though you can flip but one or two pages back in your Bible... A hundred years have gone by since that first return, almost. Fifty thousand Israelites gathered together and went back to the promised land. And you will recall that it was not a wild success. The people settled in. They started work on the temple, but quickly gave it up. And it took not one, but two prophets to encourage them to convict them of their duty to continue in building the temple of the Lord. You can just imagine with all of the hopes and dreams that those people had left, perhaps they were thinking that they would reestablish the kingdom, that the Lord would reestablish the king on his throne, and they would once again be a great nation, greater than Solomon in all of his glory. And now they look around and they see that not much has changed. Do you look around at your life now and see dreams that are unfulfilled? Perhaps for many of us, we thought on the eve of our marriage, as we started out new in a family and as we had children and watched them grow, we had all of the plans of what we would do. Oh, oh, we would train our children. They would be Bible reciting machines. Whole books of the Bible they would go off. And not once but twice a day we would have family worship. 
And they would know all of the catechism. And they would be able to lecture adults in the theology of our confession. And oh, we would be so devout in our time with the Lord. Every day we would get up at 5 a.m. and spend deep, fervent time with the Lord in His Word and in prayer. And then we look back and we see that 5 or 10 or 15 years have gone by and we see that all of those grand ideals have not come to pass. And we can be discouraged. Sure, we can look around and our kids have turned out pretty well. They enjoy hearing God's Word at church. They enjoy being with other Christians. They pray. They, they are obedient in, in the main. But somehow that doesn't live up to that grand vision. We could be depressed. Imagine now this new enterprise that comes before the people of God. After 50,000 strong have gone, now Ezra gathers up a second group, but he can only gather up about 5,000. That in and of itself would be discouraging. If 50,000 couldn't effect a change, how could five? But you see, Ezra knows that it is not in numbers he knows he must prepare the people of God for this journey. And you can imagine as he gathers them together, there are children. There are older people. And it is a long journey. 1,000 miles perhaps. Four months in the heat of the summer with a great deal of goods and baggage and expensive material. You see that in verses 25 through 28. They're carrying the equivalent of three tons of gold and 25 tons of silver in their baggage. And you can imagine all of the preparation that would have to go through this. And now we see here the great wisdom of God, and that not only does He raise up a man of prayer and of the Word in Ezra, He raises up what they exactly need at this moment. A bureaucrat. Because you see, any of you who have ever taken a family vacation know the amount of planning that is involved in it. Where do we stop? Where are we going to eat? Is everyone there? Did you remember your coloring book? Do you have your MP3 player? Do we have all of the assorted plugs and things we need for our electronics? Are we prepared if, if something happens to a tire? Now imagine to do that for 5,000 people. You'd have to take a detailed list of everyone. You don't want to be four days out and lose Johnny and not know that he's gone for three or four days. And so Ezra gathers up the people of God and uses the skills that God has given to him. Skills that we would say are downright boring. He takes notes. He makes lists. He counts. He organizes. I imagine in my mind's eye that he does the Boy Scout thing on a grand scale. Everybody has to have a buddy. You and a buddy and a donkey. Please, stay together. You see, God uses these kind of small things. We tend to think that God can only use knights in glittering armor and prophets who part seas. But you see, God uses people just like you and just like me to build His kingdom. And you see, part of what's involved here also with the preparation is something that you and I know well, and that that is that the world is watching them. Ezra has spoken to the king, 
He knows the king knows the plans, so he has to prepare this for success. He knows others are watching, and they cannot wait to jump on failure. He knows they can't wait to say, your God is a fake. You lost half your kids. Your God is a fake. You couldn't even get out the gate. And you see, he's gathering the people together to go on an important journey. The world is watching you too. They're not just watching you to see how loudly you sing hymns in church. They're not just watching you when you begin to declaim the Romans road to others. No, they're watching you when you drive. They're watching you when you speak to your children. They're watching you at work. They're watching you mow your lawn. They're watching you watch sports. And they're looking for any occasion that they can to blaspheme the living God. That's why it's so important that in all of the little details of life that we remember that we are the Lord's. And that the Lord is working through these small things. Ezra has prepared the people of God. And these people of God come in a group of families. I'm sure that as I began chapter 8, you said to yourself, Oh no, not again. Another long list of names I can't pronounce. Do you wonder why the Bible does this? Why does it list off all these names? Even as I was reading, I was struck that in the space of two verses, the same name was repeated three times. Three men had the same name. Why does God do this? I think it is partly to record the honor of these believers who gave up everything they had to follow the Lord. It's written eternally in God's Word. I think also it is there to partly to remind us of the importance of the ordinary person in God's plan. You see, it's not just Ezra. It's not just Nehemiah. It's not just Moses. It's not just Joseph whose names are recorded for eternity in God's Word. It is the individual people, the families. And these families, I think it is no surprise... There are leading families described with sons and with men who follow them. And if I had to ask you, without looking down and counting, how many families would be described, what would you guess? There's 12. Does that surprise you? 12 families, leading families with names and connections that are important. There's also something else that's interesting. If you take the time later to go back to Ezra chapter 2, you will notice that 11 of the 12 families are mentioned in the first journey in Ezra 2. Now, that, that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Because these are the families who are committed to going back to the promised land. Why would it surprise us that when part of those families had left, that the others had understood and perhaps longed to go there and pass down that longing to their children and to their grandchildren. You know, I think there is a reason after a sort that we say to ourselves, you know, it's a small world, isn't it? You've played that game, haven't you? Each Sunday morning, if someone comes and visits or someone is in from out of town and you ask them where they're from and you 
ask about families in the church or a pastor, it's inevitable that within a very short span of time, there will be a connection. You see, this shouldn't surprise us because God is constantly connecting us. It also should not surprise us that these families go again because of the truth that covenant faithfulness runs in families. It shouldn't surprise us that those families that were bold enough to go off into the night, not knowing where they went, not knowing what they would meet, would be the same kind of families that would teach their children and their grandchildren to trust the Lord. This is a lesson for us to put into practice today. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I serve the Lord? Does he want me to go on the mission field? Does he want me to go into the pastorate? Does he want me to plant a church? What what does he want me to do? Well, I think not to the exclusion of any of those things, we can honestly say to ourselves that one of the best ways that we can serve the Lord, each and every one of us, is by teaching our children and by living a godly life in front of them. That is something that is passed down from generation to generation. And the Lord uses it. These are the families that are before Ezra. And then the third thing that we see here about the people of God is that there is a hope that springs alive. You see, these are dark days for Israel. They're wondering where the kingdom is. They're wondering where the Messiah is. They're perhaps even wondering what hope God has for them. We live in times like that, don't we? I just saw a recent statistic that in England, the United Kingdom, the land of the Westminster Confession, that Christianity is declining twice as fast as they thought it was declining. And that Islam is on the rise faster than they could have ever imagined. Some statistic like one out of every ten young people in England now is a Muslim from all of the immigration. And we look at our own country and we see things that make us afraid and scare us, and we wonder where the hope is for the church. But you see, we have to remember that God does not work in statistics. God does not work in probabilities. He has a promise, and He keeps it. He made a promise to the people of God through Jeremiah in chapter 33, verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Do you see him keeping that promise? It's so quick you might miss it. It's in the list of the names. Do you see it in verse 2? Of the sons of David, Hattush. That is a spark that shows us that God is keeping his promise. In the midst of an exile, there will never lack a son of David. A reminder that God is always faithful to his word. This is the people of God, and we see next that the people are in need of priests. Ezra is a skilled leader. He's prepared the family. He's set up help from the king, but he sees that there is now a problem. He looks around, and he sees that there are no Levites. And we might wonder, well, what's the big deal about that? 
You see, the Levites were needed to do the work of the temple. They were not, strictly speaking, all priests, but they were there to help with the sacrifices and with the offerings and with the work of the temple. And this will be a hard problem for Ezra to solve because, you see, he needs to convince some Levites to leave their comfortable jobs here in Babylon. They are working in a temple in a town outside Babylon. They probably have good means. They have comfort. And he has to convince them to give all of this up to go out with him and do menial work in this small rebuilt temple far away. It shouldn't be surprised that they wanted to stay there. So Ezra sees this problem not unlike the way we see problems in the church today. But I think there's a question that we need to ask ourselves, and that is, are we only problem seers, or are we problem solvers? It doesn't take much to point out problems and then stand aside. You see, Ezra could have said, well, I don't know what we're going to do. Let me just... Let me just play devil's advocate here. We don't have any Levites. What should we do? Maybe we should cancel the trip. Does anyone have any ideas? But you see, that's not what Ezra does. He's a leader of God's people, and he sees the problem. He doesn't ignore it, and he then goes to solve it. And you see, he understands that it's a problem that can be solved because God is the one who will provide. Ezra moves into action. He gathers up some men and he sends them off and he gives them the words that they are to speak. Do you see this in verse 17? He tells them exactly what to say to Ido. And you see, we have to understand that God provides and God solves the problems, but he does not do that through our laziness. Ezra acts knowing that God will provide and he undertakes this task. And he's very forceful about it. He won't take no for an answer. He says, you tell Ido that we need the Levites. This is an important trip. The kingdom is staked upon it. And God does indeed provide. And then Ezra does something that I think is, is encouraging to us. You see it here in verse 18. He says... And thanks to the excellent arguments that I marshaled and the words of skill of my messengers, the problem was resolved and the Levites were obtained. Right? No, that's not what the Scripture says. Do you see what it says? And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man. Do you see that? Ezra gives all of the glory where it belongs to God. Because, you see, he knows God deserves it. Do you remember how we spoke just a few moments ago of God's promise through Jeremiah that there would never lack a man to sit on the throne of David? Do you know what the next verse says? Verse 18 of Jeremiah 33. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices. See, Ezra knew this was also part of the promise of God. 
the hope that he had, he brought here to action and seized upon it. He prepared the people of God. He worked to obtain priests for God. And then finally here, he leads the people in prayer. You see, Ezra understood first that every one of these pilgrims needed faith. They were about to undertake an incredible journey. They had all of these goods to carry. They were certainly going to be a target for thieves and marauders. You, today, they would gather up a couple of Brinks trucks to carry all of the utensils and the gold and the silver. And they're going through the wilderness with no protection at all. You see, he could have asked for a military escort, but he said, I don't want to, I'm ashamed to, because I've told the king that my God is sufficient. Now what am I supposed to do? Go back and to say, oh, by the way, God's sufficient, but I need some archers and horsemen too. He had claimed faith in the living God. We need faith, don't we? We need it when things are hard. We need to trust the Lord. But you see, when we need faith, we have to understand what faith looks like. You see, faith is indeed trust in the living God. Faith is confidence in the Lord. Faith is something that is life-changing to us. But you see, faith comes out in action. It must be acted out. And so what Ezra does is, because he has faith in God, he gathers together the people of God to pray. A mighty prayer. And he says to them, we have to pray. And we have to fast. We have to be prepared for this journey. And we might ask ourselves, Ezra, if you have faith, why do you need to do anything? God will provide. And Ezra would answer to us, it's because I have faith that I know I must go to the Lord. That I know I must act. We have to go on this journey. We have to trust God and we need to seek His face. I think this is what James means when he says, faith without works is dead. Real, true, living, biblical faith springs us into action. It frees us from our fears because we know our life is in God's hands. Faith is not theoretical. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not an intellectual assent. Faith is something that places our trust in the living God and we know and we act upon that. You see, prayer does not negate faith. I think sometimes we might think that. We overplay the words of the man in the Gospel of Mark to ourselves, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And we think we don't have faith, therefore we must pray so we have faith. And that does occur. But we also spring into prayer because of the trust that we have in the living God. We go to Him. And prayer is actually an expression of the faith that we have. So Ezra gathers together the people. And they pray... And they fast. And then we 
get a glimpse of the victory of faith that God gives to them. And it's very interesting the way Ezra records this. I think if if I were writing the Bible, that there would be a great deal of text between verses 31 and 32. It might be take the form of almost an exciting novel. I would want to hear about how they gathered together and how many they were and how long they traveled and how the people fell down and they were picked up and how they beat off the marauders and how they drank at the river and all of the things that they did. I would want to know everything Ezra did, everything each of these men did. But you see, the Bible's not concerned with that. The Bible is here to tell the big story of God at work. And so the irony here is, all of this incredible journey with all of the build-up for it is encapsulated in this one verse. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. And it ends with this statement. We came to Jerusalem. That's it. Nothing more than that. But you see, the hand of God was upon them. Was this an easy trip? No. I don't think because it's shortly described, it was a vacation journey. It appears that they had marauders and attackers come upon them. But you see, God wants to focus us not on Ezra, not on the Israelites, not on the trials of this world, but on Himself. That He was in it all. And that's why we have Ezra repeating for us. The hand of our God was on us. Do you know, and I do not ask, Do you know that the hand of God is upon you? Because it is. It's not whether it is or isn't, whether you are aware of it. Because you see, the Lord God has His hand on His people, taking them through trials and difficulties, heartaches and heartburns. This is the way the Lord works in the lives of His people. And He will carry you through from beginning to end. It is up to us to prepare. It is up to us to pray. And it is up to us to act all in faith upon the One who provides. Let's pray.